Heavenly Father, increase our faith, we pray, in the understanding of your word. And may our increased faith change our own lives and those lives of those around us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please have that reading in front of you. Uh, Page 1013, uh, Mark uh, chapter 9 and verse 14. It starts. Well, the news has uh, had many aspects this week. Perhaps you were one of those who concentrated on the deaths of those famous people, David Bowie or Alan Rickman. Uh, But for clergy, uh, this week has been important in the news because of the meeting of the world's top uh, Anglican archbishops in Canterbury. The issue, as they gathered, was not the one that uh, has bothered them so much over many years now, same-sex marriage, but authority and what we are to do as a church when authority is ignored. There were predictions of mass walkouts and stand-up rows, and much to the disappointment of the media, those did not happen. What did happen was discipline. The Episcopal Church of America, the most powerful, the richest church in the Anglican Communion, was suspended for three years from being able to say that it represents the global Anglican Church. It was a fairly mild judgment, but it's the first time ever that the Anglican Global Church has used the word require about any of its members. Now, you will have seen that news, and I wonder how you reacted to it. And to be honest, I felt ashamed. Not ashamed of the verdict. In fact, I was rather pleased and surprised by it. But ashamed by my own lack of faith that that is what would happen. I had slipped into believing the media likelihoods. I had thought that the meeting would be yet another terrible fudge in which nothing actually happened. But no. And I tell that story because of my own shame. We often enough complain that this or that prayer is not answered. But what about the things that are answered that we forgot to believe in prayer about? Actually, along with tens of thousands across the world, I was praying for just the result that came about but I wasn't quite believing that it would. And that's my own entry point into this very puzzling story in Mark's Gospel. It's puzzling for several reasons, but mostly because of verse 29. Jesus rebukes the deaf and mute spirit, but then says later in the quietness of a house with the disciples, this kind can come only by prayer. As though there are some demons, well we all know this, that you can throw out by yourself, but others for which you need a bit of help from God. Of course, one of the puzzles is what on earth this thing is in the first place. 
<clears throat> Matthew's account of the same story uh, uses a much more medical term for it, stays with the origin in uh, demons, but says quite clearly that the boy has epilepsy. That's in the language that they would have used. They knew enough to know that there was this thing, giving seizures, and uh, Matthew uses that term. Mark does not. Uh, None of us actually knows what was going on originally for this boy. What we can say is what the story draws attention to, however, that the disciples tried to do something about it and failed. Jesus does something about it and succeeds. But to solve the other puzzles, we need to look at where it's located as a story in Mark's Gospel. Jesus has come down from the mountain where he was transfigured, and Peter and James and John are with him. As they get down to the uh, bottom, they rejoin the other disciples who've been left behind. Uh, And uh, normal enough in life and in Scripture, there's been a mountaintop experience, there's a valley experience, and they find that the disciples are... Uh, engaged in a dispute uh, with the crowds and the teachers of the law, the scribes, are joining in. The issue that will dominate through this story is, as it unfolds, is the issue of belief or trust or faith. And that's, having had the experience on the mountaintop, that's what's going on in this valley. The man himself, the father, knows he's only partial in his faith. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The issue is belief, trust, and faith. I think we learn two things. Firstly, there's something here about dependence on Jesus. Well, that sounds obvious enough. We're in a church. It's Sunday. You expect to hear something about dependence on Jesus. But I noticed something in this reading that I had not noticed before. In verse 17, the man calls Jesus teacher. Ah, It's not an unusual uh, address to use for uh, someone who was wandering around the area and gathering followers. There were a few of those in those days. But of course, what we expect of teachers is that we outgrow them. I do not say, when faced with a problematic word in the New Testament Greek of this passage, oh, I wish I could remember what Mr. Roberts said about this, because Mr. Roberts actually taught me maths when I was eight. But I have grown beyond Mr. Roberts. It doesn't mean he taught me badly. It means he taught me well at that stage. But a teacher knows that it's about stages. Even teachers who teach adults hope to teach their students to at least match them and, if possible, surpass them. Yet we cannot leave Jesus behind. He's not that kind of teacher. That's surely part of the message of the disciples in their puzzlement at verse 26. Why couldn't we do it? You've been teaching us, you've been showing us, you even sent us out on mission to preach and heal and drive out demons, and we did. So if Jesus, in answer to that kind of inquiry, comes back in verse 29 and says, well, you need prayer, then part of the problem must be that they had got to thinking, 
Well, Jesus has passed on to us his body of knowledge. So that knowledge is now ours. We know what to do, and we will do it. They'd thought of him like every other teacher. You've got the knowledge now, now go and do it. But they'd forgotten that this teacher is the one we can never leave behind, let alone surpass. We remain utterly dependent on him, and that is represented to us in prayer. I can't seriously suppose that Jesus means in verse 29, yes, well, you did very well as a a little earlier. You did, you went out, yes, you did, and, and you drove out demons in your own strength. Well done. But now this is a super demon, and it needs a bit more prayer. Far more likely it is that what Jesus means is this. I was away from you. You thought you'd had this sorted. You'd dropped the life of prayer and closeness to God out of which power flows. You thought you could get on with it by yourselves. You need to rediscover again the life of dependent prayer out of which spiritual power can flow. The problem is, I'm not sure any of us knows too precisely what that means, what it looks like. How could we know if we'd got it? But I am clear that we know when we don't have it. We know when prayer has become mechanical and we have walked too far away from Jesus. But I said that there are two things about this story in terms of belief and faith and trust. The one is dependence on Jesus. The other is isolation from others. They're linked. There's an isolation from others that's to be expected if we are closely depending on Jesus. See, the story of the transfiguration itself has a sting in the tail. There's been this glory, and that's fantastic. But Jesus comes down the mountain and starts teaching them about suffering and and death. The Son of Man is going to be rejected. And this story now has a similar sting in the tail. There is this uh, miracle in which Jesus does do what is asked. And this boy is fine, recovered at the end of it. But immediately Jesus goes out into the countryside of Galilee and starts teaching his disciples and friends once again about uh, his suffering and being rejected and being killed. And for me, these stings in the tale, as it were, wash back into the main story. And we have to say, what, what's going on in the main story if it's heading for that sting in the tail? That means we may notice things we don't normally notice. So verse 14. They come down the mountain, they see the disciples, the crowd, the teachers of the law. There is squabbling going on. Verse 15. When the crowd see Jesus, we're told here their reaction is wonder. But it is a particular word. um, And it means the kind of wonder that's tinged with fear or um, anxiety. They are clueless, this crowd. They are pushed this way and that by their emotions. Then verse 18, we learn that the disciples could not do anything to help the man. And then we learn in verse 19 of Jesus' verdict on on the whole lot. The crowd, the scribes, the disciples, the man. Oh, unbelieving generation. Because the man himself says... In desperation at verse 22, 
Uh, Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. And the center of the story is that moment when Jesus turns back to him and says, if I can, if I can, everything's possible for the one who believes. Faith, belief, trust, in this story, they are swimming against a powerful tide. The crowds may be fascinated and alarmed even, but they are without faith. The disciples don't have enough faith. The teachers of the law are lost in argument and lack faith. And the Father is able to confess only his unbelief. Now, wouldn't it be marvelous to stand here as a preacher and say, well, you know, if you learn to be dependent on Jesus... Life will go swimmingly, and you will enjoy a warm, blessed, and holy life. And everyone will love you. But the story will not allow that. It is as though it's some sort of balance. And as dependence upon God increases, so isolation from others equally increases. It is as though the cost of the faith that casts out this demon, whatever that means is an isolation from everyone but the God who is casting out the demon. To gain the power that Jesus displays in this story needs a deeper dependence upon God than the scribes have, the the crowds have, the man has, even than the disciples have. And we may hope that a close fellowship of born-again believers empowered by the Holy Spirit will be very different, for we live after Pentecost. Please God, it is different. But no church is composed wholly of such. There will always be those like the crowds, or the scribes, or the feeble disciples. And I suppose that reflection is borne in upon me after this week with the primates. I've been a Christian a long time. I've seen lives turned around from the effect of Jesus. But I was pulled into practical unbelief by the media, who were like the crowds, and the teachers of the law, who were like the church people, all saying, this will never work. Because what is unbelief, after all? It is simply the deep sense that nothing can really change. And this story has challenged me this week as to how much I slip into that. And, of course, I pass on that challenge, therefore, to you. Now, it does not mean, it cannot mean, that because something good happened in Canterbury, we can come here and say that your depression must lift or your divorce won't happen. Your arthritis must get better or aging parents will be all right. I can't know that. But I do know that I want a relationship with Jesus that is moment by moment living inside what might happen, not inside what cannot possibly happen. And that's why I suspect verses 30 30 to 32 follow verses 14 to 29. To be dependent on God means isolation and even rejection from people. James said in his letter, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And we might turn it around, of course, and say, 
Friendship with God means enmity with the world. Not because we hate the world. Not because we go looking for difficulty. But because the world cannot help but be the world. And to the extent that like the crowds, the disciples, the man, the scribes, because the world excludes the possibility of God really acting, it makes the world a corrosive place for faith. So I have a choice. I can have the unbelief of the world and then feel ashamed when God acts, or I can believe and know the joy of God acting, but it may come at the cost of the world's rejection. It seems to be true for Jesus, and therefore I suspect it's true for me, and I've no reason to suppose it won't be true for you. Well, at the end of that reflection, uh, I was prompted to think, uh, not of just ending with a regular prayer, but with a piece of music, in uh, a song. Um, may not be your natural taste, but it is a prayer, and I invite you to use it as a prayer. It goes on for four minutes. Um, I, I believe we have the technology. We don't have the, the huge team in the gallery that we do in the earlier service, but uh, I think we have the technology. So listen to this song and turn it into your own prayer as we finish. <laughs>